Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. From the recent Boise Reformation Conference, here's Dr. Cornelis Venema speaking on the return of Christ. What I've decided to do is to, to look with you at one particular passage. I had a couple of others that I wanted to consider as well, but I didn't think I would get it done in the time allotted. One was First Thessalonians 4, simply because it refutes popular teaching that you may have heard under the theme of the so-called rapture, but I'm not going to do that. The other was a beautiful closing section of chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. Read that sometime today if you have time, where in the context of the author's description of the great work of our faithful and merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, describes how after he made that once-for-all sacrifice as the great high priest, the only high priest of his people, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, as he puts it in chapter 1, that there is a time appointed for every man, you know the text well at the end of the chapter, to die, and after that, the judgment. And typically, when we hear preachers preaching on that particular passage, it's a rather sobering and rather a, in some ways, frightening prospect, the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the author puts it, a second time. He came the first time to take away sins. He comes a second time. But actually, he ends the chapter very quickly by reminding his readers of the great event on the great day of atonement after the high priest has made the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, before the altar, in the presence of God, what's the climax of the, of the event? It's when the high priest comes from behind the curtain and declares the blessing of the Lord upon his people because the sacrifice has been made and is accepted. And they can be confident of the Lord's cleansing and His atoning sacrifice for them. And the author of Hebrews wants us to think of Christ coming that way. The same one who was once judged in your and my place, the just for the unjust, will appear. And upon his appearing, the people, even as Israel of old, under the shadow and type of the Old Testament economy, rejoiced at the priest's appearance, so it will be. The Heidelberg Catechism says, the judge who comes to judge the living and the dead is the one who has already himself been judged for you and me. Well, that's my short take on it. Now I'm going to my passage that I want to look at with you as we consider together our Lord's 
return. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses, well, the whole chapter, verse 1 through verse 12. I don't know whether you have your Bibles present, but I'll give you a little moment to find the passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest, relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you think of these words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think they could be summarized as a word of consolation, a word intended to encourage, encourage a beleaguered church in Thessalonica by the prospect of the sure and certain coming, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Now, a couple of things about 2 Thessalonians as a letter. There were three, you might say, circumstances in the churches in Thessalonica that in part gave rise to Paul's understanding that they needed to be consoled, they needed to be encouraged. The first was that this was a church that was born out of the soil and in the context of considerable opposition to the gospel, to the church, and to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you can read about that in the book of Acts. Paul and his missionary colleagues Silas and Timothy had visited Thessalonica some time before, some think around about the year A.D. 51, on Paul's second missionary journey. And we're told in the account in Acts that among those in Thessalonica, in the Jewish synagogue, and as well others, there was great opposition that was registered against the church and believers who belonged to the congregation in that place. They not only harassed them and eventually compelled Silas and Timothy and Paul to leave the city, but they intensified. That's why Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves 
We boast about you, you Thessalonians, in the churches of God, because we've heard of your steadfastness and of your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I could say that they were a church that experienced as militant church what all of God's people, sometimes more, sometimes less, experience in terms of their life as believers. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. They see around them considerable opposition to the cause and to the word of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly we could find not a few occasions to talk about how that's true today in the church throughout the world, and perhaps to a lesser degree, but nonetheless real, even in our circumstances. That can lead to what? Discouragement. Hand-wringing. Things are going from bad to worse. A perpetual lament and a grumbling and a murmuring among God's people. That was the first thing. The second thing is, there was a troublesome rumor in the church in Thessalonica that had come to them, supposedly originating from the Apostle Paul, that allegedly the day of the Lord had already occurred, taken place. A little bit of overrealized eschatology, some hyperpreterism, to use some theological categories. Uh, the event anticipated of the Lord's coming had taken place and they had missed it. So they needed instruction regarding what would be characteristic, what would be the case when the Lord comes, when the Lord is revealed. Thirdly, there was a continuing ex irritation in the churches, the church in Thessalonica, at some within the church, a segment of the church, who were so heightened in their sense of the imminence, the soonness, if not the already having occurredness of Christ's coming, that they had dropped their jobs, uh, were not working, were not providing for themselves and others, and simply waiting for the event to occur. All of this is to say, this is a word from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica regarding Christ's coming in their discouragements, in their confusion, in their uncertainty as to when the event would take place that was what you might call a word in season. You know, of course, that preachers are not always in season. They preach, as we put it sometimes, to the choir. Not so the Apostle Paul he knows his congregation, he knows what they need to hear, and so he speaks to them very powerfully of what will transpire when the Lord Jesus comes. And there are two things that I would have us notice broadly. Now that sounds promising, two things, we can cover that in a short time. Well, there are two broad categories of things. The first of which is what he says about the nature of the event itself what it will be, what it will be like when Christ comes, at what in the New Testament is sometimes called his parousia, which is a word, a technical term for the coming of a great king. And he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, so there's no parousia coming of the king like the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's called in the New Testament, commonly called, his appearing, His manifestation. 
You've heard of something called the Epiphany. And as good Reformed folk, you may not want to celebrate the season of Epiphany, but uh, it's a word that refers to his appearing. And it's a word used, it's the word the author of Hebrews used in the passage I started with in Hebrews chapter 9. He appeared the first time. He will appear a second time. Well, in this particular passage, Paul gives a little different description, a powerful but common description of the nature of the event that will be the parousia, the appearing, the second advent of the great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want us to notice in the second place what he says, not about the event itself, what it will be like, that is to be contemplated and anticipated, but what he says respecting the comfort and encouragement that this grants to God's people then, but also in this year of our Lord, 2019, also here in Boise. Someone said to me, it's not Boise with a Z, you're not a native. It's Boise. Boise. So I'm not a native. I can't say Boise. I can say Boise. Uh, what it also says to us by way of encouragement, even at our conference, as we come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Well, first of all, the nature of the event contemplated. It's very striking that the Apostle Paul uses here a particular word. It's the word revelation. Did you notice in verse 6 when he says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Those who are presently Thessalonians afflicting you, the day will come if they do not repent before it's coming, that they will be afflicted. The tables will be turned. And to grant rest to you who are afflicted as well to us. And now listen carefully to how he describes it. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Literally, technically, he says, at the apocalypsis, the apocalypse, the revelation. And it's a striking picture. You know from the account of our Lord's ascension in the book of Acts that he was taken up in the clouds from whence he shall come again. And you can think of the clouds as, in a sense, a concealing, veiling as he is translated to his place at the Father's right hand. As you have seen him go, so you shall see him come. In a manner of speaking, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to think it will be as though the clouds of the heavens will be open. Literally, the word revelation has the idea of an unveiling. Uh, strictly, literally, a removal of the curtain. 